Hello, I am John. Welcome to my podcast number 12 in this series, Letters of the Oracle to the Church of the Unknown Christians and the Saints of God Scattered Abroad. Welcome. Today we are covering the full constitution of the only begotten Son of God revealed so far out of the series and chapters of the book called The Odyssey, A Chronicle of the Two Adams, Paradise Regained. God's heavenly kingdom law from the first Adam to the last Adam is first the natural, then the spiritual. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 58. The natural is temporal and the spiritual is eternal. The natural world is a world of clay. It's just the type that we're following. The spiritual world is a world of transformed clay or transforming clay by fire to stone, including gold, silver and precious stone. The purification of all of those brought about by fire and pressure. So to note, first of all, our first man, Adam, has feet of clay. But our second man and last Adam has feet that appear like burnished brass. That means they're in the fire. They're transformed by fire. In Revelation 1.15 it says, And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. His many-membered body, out of whose belly, new, the, that is the inward new man, that uh, what the King James Version of the Scriptures call the belly, the inward new man, flow rivers of living water. So his voice is as the sound of many waters. That's now referring, of course, and including his many-membered body. It's found in Isaiah 14 and John 7 through uh, verse 48 out the rivers of living water springing up from within. So this last Adam is now the spirit of all life and the word of all life and the light of all life and the love of all life revealed according to the sequence. I'll just repeat this. We're looking at the full constitution of the only begotten Son of God revealed so far. He, God, is now the spirit of all life in the last Adam the word of all life in the last Adam, the light of all life in the last Adam, and the love of all life revealed according to the following sequence. Point one, the eternal soul became flesh, that's the natural realm, in the lowering planting of God's seed into the earth. Point two, the Old Testament reveals the plan, pattern, and diary of things of the eternal to come in script, on stone, and paper or papyrus and by prophecy and it included a temporary and outward form or model tabernacle and man-made temples are used to show a picture of the reality to come. Point three, God's law was given to reveal the sin of disobedience, to make sin really appear sin, the natural man's default state. God's law gives sin the sting of death, its power, by God issuing demands, uh, commands, sorry, and laws to the natural man. 
However, the law is spiritual, but the first man is natural, as are all his children. That's the first Adam's children. And so it is impossible to obey and keep them. Only the spiritual man, the second man, can fulfill the law. Hence, God ensures we all experience death. This is very important to understand all of this. Point four, the eternal word became flesh. Right, first point, the eternal soul become, became flesh. Now the eternal word became flesh. And the natural realm was born under the law and the curse to usher in the eternal new covenant by breaking the curse and fulfilling the law's requirement with Jesus' death on the cross. The four Gospels are the parenthesis, where the old pattern of the soul, the old wineskin that tried to do and keep what God had commanded, is ended between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the new eternal building is begun by the Spirit and the Word after the cross, as demonstrated in the book of Acts. The shedding of his blood ended the old creation of which we are told in the book of Hebrews that it speaks better things than that of Abel's whose first shed blood revealed the sin of Cain. The fruit result of our lowered state. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood there is no remission or cancellation of sins. You can read about that in Hebrews 11 verse 4 chapter 12, 22 through 29, Matthew 23, 35, Hebrews 9, 16 through 26. Point number five, the first Adam was made a living soul that must be saved from the realm of disobedience. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit in order to, dis to, to deposit the living word who became flesh into the spirit of our new minds to make possible the saving of our souls. Number six, point six. The spirit of the triune God, full of the living word and his anointing, was poured out on all flesh. That's the natural realm. That is the now the New Testament, which the outworking of that is described in the book of Acts, so that all flesh in the natural realm under the new covenant could see the salvation of God and be brought into God's spiritual realm or kingdom of heaven. This is done by hearing the word, the Logos, spoken by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, not the Bible. Although we use the Bible, of course, to understand what God is speaking to us from heaven, as it is an example of many of the acts and speakings and working of God in humanity. The Spirit is the Word of God who is now writing it in our hearts and inscribing it in our minds by His speaking. The Spirit, by His speaking Spirit of the Son of God, the Logos from heaven, in last point, number seven, God's children can now be obedient through the Spirit to the faith and love of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now we need to know our human bodies were not created in sin, nor were we born in sin, but were formed, our bodies were formed out of the dust of the earth. 
bodily out of the dust of the earth because of what the triune Godhead said when they declared. And I quote, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, unquote. That's Genesis 1.26. That's right, we're made in the image of the triune Godhead's image, not sin's image. Did you get that? We are made, we were made in the image of the triune Godhead's image, not sin's image. Made in their likeness with all of the triune God, compounded in their seed, and formed within them before any created thing. Then we are born of the triune God at the appointed time by receiving God's triune breath, his spirit, the breath of lives, the natural and spiritual, into us via the first man, the first Adam. But the seed remains dormant until the appointed time of planting, which happens once the ground is prepared and made ready to produce the glory locked in the seed. All of this augmented and orchestrated from the throne of the triune Godhead before sin ever became a contemporary, a contemporary realm in God's creation. Yet in such a created realm, the triune God would send us into his purposely developed lower realm school called in Old Testament scripture, the outer court where Israel had to learn all about the holy place and the innermost place, the holy of holies. It is also what Jesus called in the New Testament scriptures, the outer darkness, where we need to be brought into the anointed one, Christ, the light of the world, and where he is prepared as our sacrifice for our salvation by the death of the cross. This is in order to grant us the way to enter the holy place where Christ is formed in us, the Apostle Paul tells us, and where we are transformed by Christ, the anointing, in order to enter the holiest presence of all, our God and our Father, with our great High Priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, ever interceding for our growth and development. You can read about that in Hebrews 7, verses 23 to 26. All this in order to elevate us all to the higher realm of the triune Godhead's domain in the Father's house, as described in, by Jesus in John 14. In and through Christ, the anointing from the lowest school and classroom to the highest and holiest room of the highest realm of Godhead. The Holy Scriptures tell us this is because triune loved, so loved, in order to share triune love with the bride and wife of the Son of God, who is called the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world once and for all, for eternity. But apparently not for all his children, I'm told. And some still say God keeps the punishment of people for their sin upon them for eternity. That is, for many millions of people, for millions of aeons, multiplied by aeons eternally. Well, we need to explore this concept further, though, because the eternal punishment doesn't fit the crime of disobedience in temporary time in his children while they are learning to become obedient. This brings into question the justice and righteousness of God, or more correctly, our misunderstanding of his terms of punishment and discipline 
in connection with his righteousness and justice. This eternal punishment concept, purveyed by the likes of those who believe they are eternally saved from it, means that Jesus hasn't paid the debt of sin in full for us all, but only pays it for those who happen to ask for it in the short and temporary realm called time. This means it can only benefit those who happen to hear about it, who then must accept it before they die, we're told, or off to hell they go to be punished and tormented for eternity as ignorant, silly, wicked, ungrateful children or whatever, not to mention those who have never heard of the Saviour. How temporary crime and time, disobedience and ignorance as God's child requires eternal torment or as punishment, this concept makes the child greater than its father and greater than the father's ability to train, discipline and transform it making the learning of obedience by that which it suffers an impossible goal. Well, for those who believe this, both them and their Heavenly Father have a major problem of credibility to me, and to many. It is surely not what a good father would allow a child to become. The Scriptures show clearly that neither has your Heavenly Father allowed any child of His to become greater than His Father forcing the father to throw his child into an incinerator to be tormented for eternity, no matter how ignorant or gross the disobedience. Shameful. Our Heavenly Father, we need to know, we all need to know this, we all need to understand this, our Heavenly Father cannot lose a child. That is, you need to refer to the lost lamb in Luke 15 verses 4 through 7. Our Heavenly Father cannot neglect a child. Refer to the prodigal lamb in Luke fifteen eleven through 32. Our Heavenly Father cannot abuse a child. That is, refer the Samaritan and the abused lamb in Luke 10, 25 through 37 by tormenting it for eternity and be called our Heavenly Father. Think about it. This amounts to extreme child abuse by an abuser, which surely is not possible for a loving Heavenly Father to be, who is renowned for love that never fails. Well, just as no one goes to heaven of their own accord, no one goes to hell or the lake of fire of their own accord. God has not ever, ever, never given anyone that right or that choice because it has nothing to do with the children's choice. They have no idea, the children have no idea of their father's long-term plan or what the consequences of the father's purpose and personal plan for all of his children will be, which includes you and I, where he wants to place every one of us, position everyone, reveal their explicit function, explicit function, and all the provisions out of his wealth. Excuse me that it's required to fulfill their function for eternity or parts and portions of eternity. The problem is children have, given they have begun life in a state of spiritual ignorance and had to gain natural knowledge little by little, is that most don't know enough and so make conclusions about things they know little about. 
They've entertained little spiritual thoughts on matters they've just discovered or recently heard about and immediately draw conclusions as if they knew it all, condemning all who object or disagree with their conclusions, mostly based on what they don't know, ignorance, their own. Many people will object to what I'm sharing in this series, but it'll be out of their ignorance, not out of their knowledge. But more importantly, these matters can never be sorted, comprehended and understood by the natural man. For as the scripture declares, the natural man and his mind is at enmity with God. How can that which is at enmity with God know the will and purpose of God? Very good question. God knows everything about his enemies, but his enemies know nothing about God unless God reveals something to them in order for them to do his will. As we see clearly in Revelation 17, verses 14 through 18. I want you to know God, our Father, is very just in dealing with his children. As Jesus shows clearly in his story, the following story, about a certain rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. You can find this in Luke chapter 16. 19 through 31. The rich person, Jesus tells us, lived in the lap of luxury while the beggar lay ill at his gateway begging, hoping for the scraps from the rich person's table as the dogs licked his ulcerated sores. A scenario experienced by millions of God's children today around the world in many countries. Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels, the messengers, to the place of honour at Abraham's side. Jesus went on to say that the rich person also died and was buried. Note the word buried. The rich person was being tormented in Hades and saw Abraham afar off with Lazarus next to him. In Luke 16, 24 through 25, we read, and I quote, He shouted out, Father Abraham, please have mercy on me. Please send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in some water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, Remember, my child, all the good things that you fully received while you lived? And all the bad things that happened to Lazarus. But now this person is encouraged in this place. And you're the one who is in distress. I recommend you read the rest of Jesus' story in Luke 16, 19 through 31. It is very important. Jesus is relating matters concerning his realm, his kingdom, his paradise his school of discipline and training, chastisement to bring us to obedience. Lazarus on earth begged for some food from the rich person. Now the rich person is begging for a drop of water from the finger of Lazarus, a complete reversal. God has a cool, comforting school for the obedient and the suffering. God has a hot tormenting school for the proud, the abusers, the arrogant, and the disobedient. 
Our choice of obedience needs to be made now, while we are still on this natural earth. It is also worth noting in this story of Jesus that the rich person called Abraham his father, and Abraham called the rich person his child, so they were all in the family. We're not talking about people who don't know. We're talking about people who should have known better, especially the rich man. Well, many of us humans will experience this all-encompassing and comforting love like Lazarus in the place of honour with Abraham due to our great and enduring suffering at the hands of others while on earth. We're not told whether the person begging knew Jesus or not, but Jesus certainly knew him whom he loved, who was tormented in his earthly state of begging as his last resort to stay alive and so sent him to the place of honour in paradise with Abraham to be loved and comforted in God's finishing school in paradise. Soon God himself will wipe away all tears from Lazarus's eyes. And I want you to know, eventually, after due process, the rich person's tears too. Lazarus will be rewarded eternally for his endurance and suffering. The rich person has already had his reward, Jesus tells us, and now is at school to learn obedience with Father Abraham giving him his first lesson. Bearing our own punishment for disobedience and sin over and over eternally is a million times more excessive than Jesus bearing the punishment for sin for us once and for all, the emphasis on once. This means your suffering is far greater and will be getting greater and greater than anything Jesus has ever suffered as eternity rolls on if you have to pay for your own sins. This is either a portrayal of a God and Father who has lost control or a portrayal of a mischievous or a portrayal of mischievous humans who are completely ignorant of God's plan and work and are perpetuating error as being truth. This is because they are unwilling to examine the profundity of their stupidity in putting down what God has accomplished in bringing Jesus Christ to obedience. They see this as, as insignificant when compared to disobedient humans suffering their punishment for eternity. If Jesus himself learned obedience and then took the punishment for the sin of the world to the cross as planned, so that no one else needed to be punished because sin has been removed once and for all, what on earth are these disobedient children being eternally punished for? Well, this misconception of an eternal world of punishment and torment for their disobedient children borders on blasphemy to, of the Holy Triune Godhead. It clearly suggests that Godhead has no idea on how to manage their children, it also completely undermines all the attributes of the divine nature of God with trust, justice, righteousness, mercy, grace, faith and love taking the biggest hit due to suggesting we have a God and Father who has no idea how to manage his own disobedient children. If you still have to pay for your own sin, whether you know Jesus or not, when it has already been removed and blotted out and buried in the deepest sea, crucified on the cross and put to death on the cross, of Jesus Christ, then Jesus not only wasted his time in suffering on earth on the cross, 
but he didn't need to give up the glory he had with the Father from the beginning. <coughs> Excuse me. Nor did he have to strip himself of his reputation as God and come to earth to be our Saviour. The good news is that Jesus has taken away all of our sin, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not. That's the good news. Not just our sin, but the sin of the whole world, from the beginning to the end, from the first person to the last person yet to appear. Why? Because we're his children. That's why. <coughs> Excuse me. The number one work in the mission that Jesus accomplished through the cross is the removal of all sin, all past, all present, and all future, which had to be done to clear the pathway for God the Father to converse, converse with us, face to face, with each of us. This was done in order to deal justly with all of us, his children, the good ones, the evil, the bad, and the ugly, to render all of us, his children, our rewards, our losses, and or measured judgment of chastisement and discipline. Now, we need to note, it's worth noting, firstly, that all the punishment for sin has never changed. The wages of sin is death. It is and will remain what it is eternally, death. This makes the punishment for sin effective for eternity. Let me ask you, who was it? Who paid the wages for everyone in full? Took the punishment for everyone in full? Bore the penalty for everyone in full? And paid the ransom in full for everyone? Dying for everyone in the fullness of God's plan? Yes, it was Jesus, the Lamb, the Son of God, also known as the last Adam, a full and complete sacrifice. And his death is effective for everyone. In fact, effective for the whole world for eternity. This alone means there cannot be any such process as eternal punishment. However, I want to remind you, there is punishment measured out by the Eternal One, whose holy fire is also eternal. But that does not mean God goes on punishing his children for eternity. If there is, then the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is completely ineffective for the whole of eternity. It carries the same conclusions and argument for those who say there's no resurrection of the dead. It is therefore clear from the Holy Scriptures that the holy fire of our triune God is for the salvation of our souls to ensure our salvation is completed in every one of us. And that no one escapes anything. <coughs> <coughs> but it's dealt with justly by God, according to his measure. It is also worth noting we are not here for eternity. Eternity is here for us. It is the same imperative Jesus shared when he said in Mark 2.27 that humans weren't made for the law, the Sabbath. The law, the Sabbath, was made for the people. God didn't make you and I for eternity. He made eternity for us. So much so, he has given it to us as a gift. Once we learn obedience to the mind of Christ, the anointing, we will enjoy more and more of this gift of eternal life.
to get us into the anointing that teaches us all things by which we become obedient is the purpose of God's holy fire. It's why we suffer what we suffer. It's why we unwittingly go through ordeals when we pay attention and learn the lesson. It means we don't have to go through it again. And this is the purpose of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire now. That's so well documented in the book of Acts. So we won't have to do it by the lake of fire later due to our rebellion and disobedience. The outworking, with the outworking of obedience still unfinished when we die. So then, what are people doing in the lake of fire, which Jesus calls the second death? And why are they there? This is because of their continued transgressions, their disobedience, their laziness, their cowardice. Rebellion, hatred, warmongering, murder, loving this world's idolatry, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, unrepentant, filthy behavior, trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus, putting him to open shame, denying the Lord that bought them with so great a prize, child abuse, war crimes, deception, fraud, theft, extortion, torture, Merchandising God's kingdom, kingdom and church, politicizing the Lord's church, adultery, lying, everything related to the evilness of this natural world. In fact, everything related both the good and the evil tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both that aspects of this dualism must be overcome by us. The five apostles mentioned in chapter 5 of the book and in one of the earlier podcasts of the series, Peter, Paul, James, Jude and John all share numerous lists of people in their writings who will face the fury of their father, God's fire, unless they repent. If not, they will face being chastised disciplined and touched Jesus says by the second death itself punished tested beaten he also describes some with few stripes and some with many Jesus says in Luke 12 47 through 49 purged and cleansed by being handled by the consuming fire called the second death by Jesus as he explained to John in the revelation of Jesus Christ while on the Isle of Patmos for this you can look at Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11, chapter 24 through 6 and verse 15, chapter 21 verses 6 through 8, Matthew 13, 40 through 43 and 49 through 51, Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Jude also confirms Jesus' teaching in this in Jude verse 7 and Peter in his second epistle also confirms this in chapter 2 verses 6 and 7, and chapter 3, verse 7. So don't tell me I'm making it up. This has been in the Bible since its inception, since it was written. It's written by the apostles. I'm only repeating what's there, but what most people ignore. Now, our Father is full of mercy and is very long-suffering and patient with his children, as we, as we can all see and vouch for, and has ways and means to deal 
with every disobedient child, good or evil, both now and in the future. As it tells us in 1 Timothy 5, verses 24 and 25, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. And then I want to take you to Luke 11, verses 7 through 13, and it says, And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now closed. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee bread. They think he was asking for some loaves of bread. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him bread because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many loaves as he needs. And I say to you, this is again Jesus speaking, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks will receive, and he that seeks finds, and him that knocks it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? This story in Luke is about our Heavenly Father not being evil or rendering evil for evil. It also indicates we are living in the reality of the kingdom of heaven where God no longer renders evil for evil under the law of Moses where it is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, etc. People no longer get what they deserve unless they remain disobedient given that Jesus Christ took the total deserve of all punishment for sin for all humans upon himself so we could love our enemies do good to those who despitefully use us or who spitefully attack us or abuse us, speak poorly of us. Jesus didn't come to make sure everyone got their just desserts for being good or evil. He didn't come to judge the world, he said, but rather that the world through him might be saved, to deliver us all from evil in order to remove forever the enmity including the need of hell and the need of, for the lake of fire, the second de death, the second death and our last enemy, soon to, be put under, re to, soon to be put to rest in God's footstool, under his feet and therefore ours also, under ours, with him. Not everyone here but wants to repent in obedience and belief. No, not all want to repent and believe. We know that. Especially to receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's what every one of us need. Every human being on earth today needs to receive and be filled with the Holy Spirit as God's child. God has his ways and means to bring us to repentance that means to change our minds. That means to turn around. It means to stop going our own way and going, our, coming to our Father to learn His ways, His truth, and His life. 
as it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4, verse 4 tells us. Eventually, sooner or later, every human being is going to ask their Father for the Holy Spirit. How long it will take depends on the hardness of the disobedient, rebellious heart and soul, and how much of the second death a consuming fire experience it takes to recover it. They will get what they deserve there in order to soften them and bring them and prepare them for conversion, reconciliation, renewal and restoration. But the truth is there remains no more punishment for the sin realm in which the whole of creation was lowered because our Lord Jesus Christ took the punishment for sin once for all and nailed it to the cross, crucified and then buried it. He cannot do it again as there is no more sin to remove. It is now an issue of obedience for every human being and God has everything in place for that to be outworked and everyone and everything sooner or later. Therefore, for those who continue in sin or disobedience, once you know the Lord, you need to know there is no more forgiveness after your death that can be asked for because since the time of his resurrection, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. He paid the wages of sin in full once and for all by his death and through the cross, removing the law of carnal commandments that gave sin strength and power. So the only option left now after you die is for God's children, still by the mercy and grace of God, to be saved by God's all-consuming fire. It could have been by grace through faith, which is not of ourselves, given it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But now it has to be by fire because God loves you and cares for you and he's going to get you into his presence one way or another. This is the purpose of the second death. As it says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, we are told, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This is the same purpose as the flood that Peter talks about in his epistle. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in Revelation 2.11, we are encouraged with this. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. There is a way to escape the second death. Go to your Father. Find out the way that he wants you to take through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the one thing that does remain for all humans still lost in acts of disobedience is the receiving of a fearful, awesome discipline or chastisement, training, development. This is dreadful to bear for so many, causing the rebellious untold grief until they repent and learn to obey their father's call. Not as a master over their enmity and rebellion, he's already lord over all of that, but as a lover of their soul, your soul, my soul. Then after the discipline and subsequent repentance it yields, there is the peaceable fruit of righteousness and the fruit of obedience 
is revealed in Hebrews 12. Verse 11, particularly, as we are trained and schooled by the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit and fire, together with the sufferings we go through. We are then transformed by the renewing of our minds, by obedience to the Spirit, arriving at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ unto a complete man, to be filled with all the fullness of God. God here disciplines us because they love us and because perfect love casts out all fear of torment and fear of death. God is not a God of revenge and punishment to fear by his children, but a God of love who eventually removes all fear of torment and suffering within us, given that we are his sons and daughters, his children. The Father disciplines all of his children so that the Son, who took away our sins and the sin of the world, may be glorified. The Son also did what he did so that the Father may be glorified. Then both of them want us to share in their glory. How profound. So this will end this podcast number 12 and I will see you in the next one where we will finish this portion. I think we go a little bit further. Yeah. And then I encourage you. Well, let me do it now because it's not much here. So our God can concentrate now on transforming, developing and building our joint dwelling place in each other as triune beings. Our triune Godhead with their new triune body built up in love. That's what it's going to be. The only thing that gets to stay in hell is all of our wood, hay and stubble and of all the lowered formed realm used as the scaffold, the natural temporary elements, including our self-righteous efforts till the eternal building is complete. And then hell and death are thrown into God's lake of fire and the lake of God's fire is eventually abolished by our Lord Jesus Christ as the last enemy. Jesus called it the second death in the book of Revelation. This is the last thing to go under his feet, the lake. The feet of the last Adam. Again, see 1 Corinthians 15. When there's no more rubbish, sin, self-righteousness, garbage, scaffold, enemies and adversaries to be consumed or to be touched by God's fire for, to transform his children, the lake of fire can be removed or abolished for eternity. Remember, God's fire is eternal. But according to Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15, the lake the second death, the last enemy itself, is not eternal. Even this earth and its heavens will be consumed and dissolved in this lake before it is abolished. Read the epistles of Peter, James and Paul regarding this current earth and its heavens. You do some research there. In the eternity of the eternal, our eternal triune God and eternally conversed and loved together in order to bear an eternal only begotten Son. In doing so, they became the full embodiment and eternal depository of the triune Godhead's conversing, that is, his living, loving words, thus containing the continuing eternal logos of love eternally. This meant that the Son was always eternally ready to be separated from the eternal trinity at the Father's word, the Rhema, as the first and only begotten birth Son, the firstborn out of the triune God. So amazing. This conversing all took place from before the beginning of any created thing. 
to become the firstborn of all creation at the highest level, in order to create everything for the Godhead's greatest glory to become our inheritance. This living Logos was crucified, separated by the living operative word, the rhema, the double-edged sword out of Logos, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul from spirit in order to bring to birth the souls of men in Christ, the anointed one before the foundation of the world, the cosmos. Here, the first man and first Adam became a living soul as a triune Godhead breathed their spirit, lives of breath or breath of lives into Adam, man. Adam became a living soul to multiply God's seed. Now in the fullness of time, the last Adam is ready to become flesh, to be born at the right time and dwell amongst us in order to prepare the living Logos to dwell within each of us, as promised by the prophets of old. This is to develop and grow Godhead's seed, so we would also be his living, piercing, ever sharp rhema on his earth, for which he became the firstborn from the dead. He now has first place in everything as well as last place including all creatures, great and small. It is here at this appointed time where God had meant and wills us to have dominion with them over all creation as fully mature humans and children of God, even as God first revealed his command to their young, but undeveloped and untrained by reason of exercise or use, the Son of God, the first Adam. This order of dominion was decided by the triune Godhead before any created thing and before they crafted the body of Adam out of the dust of the earth, our temporary body, our temporary tent. The dominion was never meant for us as young, unschooled, immature, inexperienced and thus disobedient children who were learning to be obedient as caring, loving, full-grown sons and daughters, mature children of the living God. This was about having the same experience of Christ Jesus, who himself learnt obedience by the things he experienced and went through, according to the Holy Scriptures. Upon fulfilment of our own obedience to the anointing, we have been given the right to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ is conferred upon us by him, our head. Amen. Now before hearing the following podcasts as we move on from the book into chapter 15 i recommend that you read chapters 5 6 7 8 9 10 in hebrews to provide some context for what follows thank you see you soon